Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 1st, 2018, the Hope Hicks Luke's Loose Lips Sink Ships edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Try saying that three times quickly. Try saying it once, Plotz. I don't know. I'm it in Washington, D.C. It that hard to me, actually. I know. I just <laughs> stumbled over it because my tongue is lazy. I see. Uh, that is Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine in New Haven, maybe? Are you in yes. New Haven? And... Also, I suspect down the line, across the copper wires, is John Dickerson of CBS's This Morning in New York. Hello, John. Hello. That was a very CBS-y voice. Uh, okay. It was very, it felt very authoritative. <laughs> On this week's GabFest, the increasingly fraught and complicated Russia investigation and FBI investigation and Department of Justice investigation gets even more fraught and even more complicated. Then the president's first State of the Union address was on Tuesday. Have you already forgotten it? We will quiz you to see if you remember it. Then Hillary Clinton runs headlong into Me Too as she tries to explain why she shielded a harasser who worked for her 2008 presidential campaign. Plus we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we get started, a new announcement well, two announcements. First, our Portland show on March 21st is sold out. So I'm sorry to say there are no more tickets to that, but that's okay because just around the corner, 2,300 miles away, on May 2nd, we will be doing a show in St. Louis. So if you couldn't get to our Portland show, you undoubtedly can get to our St. Louis show at the Sheldon Concert Hall in St. Louis on May 2nd. Tickets on sale at slate.com slash live. It is exciting for us to get to Missouri. It'll be our first Missouri show. Are we going to say Missouri or Missouri, John? Can you be defended? Well, about I think that? it's. I think if you're, uh, I mean, you're in the northern part of the state, it's Missouri, and the southern, it's Missouri. But I. But there are some people who will uh, plant a flag and refuse to retreat from it, who are in the opposite of that description I just gave. But so I don't know. I don't know. I we, know St. Louis is from the East eastern. Coast. It is a little affected to start saying Missouri. Like, I grew up saying Missouri, so I feel, always feel... I like how Missouri sounds, but I always feel like I'm sort of trying too hard. Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. Or, yeah, or is it like Nevada, where you're, it's supposed to be Nevada, not Nevada? Oh, my gosh. I can't... If we, get, if we do the show, we do a show in Oregon, Nevada, Missouri, and then we can stop... We can, then we can go to regularly pronounced states like New York... Uh, anyway, go to slate.com slash live. We're very excited to come to St. Louis and, uh, we hope to see you there for our first Missouri show. Wait, did I, you know, I think I mixed this up on Nevada. It's Nevada. I thought maybe Sorry. you not did Nevada. too. I did. I did. I did. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> but I wasn't sure. It's I was Nevada, like, not Nevada, right? Correct. Okay. It's I Nevada. don't know. I'm not going to, I'm God. just not going to speak it. I'm just going to say Las Vegas. The, our Nevada. entire St. Louis show will just be us discussing how to pronounce this is so boring. Do you think anyone is still listening? Uh, we'll see. The FBI Russia story has taken on the quality of a telenovela. Each day brings so many twists and turns that it is impossible to keep up. Um, I will try to capture a few of them. Just in the last day or so, there comes the uh, news or the, the, the rumor that a former Trump Official Mark Corallo is going to testify that Hope Hicks suggested that the emails that Donald Trump Jr. had sent about the legendary Russia meeting in Trump Tower would never get out, implying some element of obstructing justice, perhaps. Also, in the last day or so comes uh, news that Devin Nunes's memo, which has been sent over the White House for approval, may have been altered then Republicans saying, well, it really wasn't altered except trivially, but if it was altered, does it need to be reapproved by 
Congress. Also comes news that Peter Strzok, the FBI agent whose supposed anti-Trump bias is poisoning the FBI and subjecting it to F investigation, was in fact one of the leading people fighting to get the Hillary Clinton uh, FBI email investigation reopened right before the election and wrote the letter that is widely regarded as costing, having cost Hillary Clinton the election. There's just so much other stuff. The FBI chief, Chris Wray, has taken the remarkable step of publicly opposing the release of the Nunes memo. Meanwhile, the president's lawyers seem to be positioning themselves to reject special counsel Bob Mueller's request for a direct interview with the president there. I literally forgot as I was writing my notes down that after we taped last week was the revelation that the president had tried to fire the special counsel. It was only stopped when when his lawyer, Don McGahn, threatened to resign if he did that. Wait, so, one more thing, which is that we called our episode 50,000 texts last week and they found those texts. Oh, and they found those texts. It's yeah. just anyway. Right, right. Like literally as we were closing, finishing up the show, <laughs> the FBI was able to recover those Anyway, texts. it's just an extraordinary spectacle. I continue to have doubts whether this is where uh, Democrats should want to spend all of their time, but it does seem to be where the media is spending all of its time. Can you can you find a theme in this pudding, in this kind of garbage pile of horror show, this whatever me- metaphor I'm going to mix here? Can you find a theme for us? Well, one theme I think is really important is the institutional prerogative and just kind of basic doing its job of the administrative state, in particular, the FBI and the Justice Department, and the extraordinary spectacle of Trump's hand-picked FBI director, Christopher Wray, feeling like he has to defend his institution from Devin Nunes and from President Trump, from this effort to discredit the FBI. It's as if whatever the FBI is doing to investigate Russian meddling in the election It's as if from the point of view of the president and his allies that stopping that is worth burning down the house, basically. It's very confusing to watch um, an institution which is led by people who Trump picked, which is in the executive branch, have to take this stance against Trump and against Nunes as if they were on opposite sides, when in fact, it looks like the FBI and the Justice Department, you know, these figures, Chris Ray, Rod Rosenstein, they are people who Trump hired. Presumably, they're not eager to be out there taking this stance against him. And I really feel like they must feel like they don't have any choice. John, I think it I think it matter. It does matter because of the I think of what Emily is saying, when you have the president engaged with another branch of government in an effort to undermine the FBI in a broad way. You know, this is not just to say there was a bad apple here or a bad apple there. It's a really to throw a broad skepticism over the FBI and to give more support for this idea that there is a deep state at the FBI that was trying to to meddle in the election and keep Donald Trump from being president. We should note, as I mentioned last week, if there is such a deep state uh, and in all corners of the FBI, they did a terrible job of keeping Donald Trump from being president. They did such a bad job that perhaps they should be all fired for malfeasance because the memo that was released 11 days before the election certainly contributed, Hillary Clinton thinks it cost her the election, it certainly contributed to her woes in the final 11 days of the election. And so if they were trying to keep Donald Trump, the deep state, which in this narrative is so all-powerful, the the fact that they helped Donald Trump in that very public way Uh, It seems to me that they did a a terrible job at being deep state participants. Right. And this latest news about Peter Strzok wanting to reopen the investigation into Clinton's emails and drafting the letter that Comey released right before the 2016 elections, which were so damaging to Clinton. All of that suggests that whatever reservations Strzok had about Trump becoming president, which he clearly expressed in these text messages, he had some other duty he saw as overriding. I mean, if you think of like the he was actually in a position to make a decision that would have favored Clinton and he made the opposite call. I don't personally think that going public at that moment was the right call, but it certainly suggests that whatever political affiliations and preferences he had, they were not determinative in his judgment in a a partisan sense, right? 
as I read the reporting, and I, I've uh, only seen the CNN reporting on this, though, I think there's an important distinction. Strzok wanted the investigation to happen, which supports your point of view, which is he wanted to investigate these new sets of emails where he had some debate is whether that this should be made public and tell Congress. If he had qualms about it being made public, what that connects with is the Department of Justice policy, which says don't make something public in a way that is going to have a potentially destabilizing effect on an election. And the reason that matters and figuring out that is that there was a report this week in both the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal that Andrew McCabe, the number two at the FBI, was being investigated by the inspector general of the FBI for taking a month when these emails that were found on Anthony Weiner's laptop for taking a month before notifying Congress that they were being looked into. His defenders say that's because he was exercising the regular standard operating procedure of the Department of Justice. There are others who say, no, this shows the fix was in to try to cool things for Hillary Clinton so she could win the election. Right. I mean, one thing I've been wondering about is it sounds like this inspector general report is going to be critical of McCabe, that that was part of why he, you know, abruptly departed this week. And if indeed that is true, that seems like the best weapon for Nunes and Trump in discrediting the FBI. And yet they haven't been talking about that much. It's confusing to me. Maybe that's because it's not yet clear what's in it. And maybe it's because the criticisms don't fall neatly along partisan lines um, because of the issues you were just talking about. I mean, Comey really did. And I we talked about it at the time. I mean, he really did depart from the regular rules, both in the press conference he had the summer before the election and then in that October letter. So sorting through those questions about the timing of um, the investigation becoming public seems really important to me to figure it out. And I hope that Inspector General report will do that in a way that seems like truly neutral and has the institutional um, kind of rules and norms at heart. Well, so, I mean, John, what do you think? I I just wonder if this is like an act of desperation that is just right. not, like that. Maybe it's not a good place for Democrats to put all their energy. But I wonder if Republicans are going to be sorry that they went down this road, too. I don't know how the politics play out. I think that that one thing you have, obviously, is that you could imagine um whatever is in this memo being used to begin the case to get rid of Rosenstein and then replace him by somebody who would fire Mueller. And now, where am I getting that from? That's from Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, who's on the Intelligence Committee, who we talked to this week, and who said that's what to look for. Or another theory I've heard is that this effort is a way to kind of broadly dis- discredit the FBI and then use that as the pretext for claiming that Mueller's not on the level, and therefore, why should the president talk to him? I don't know if we've talked about this on the show, but um, for a president who is plays so fast and loose with the truth, the Washington Post counted over 2,000 uh, uh, misstatements, lies, untruths, and otherwise from the president, it, it's hard f- to imagine what an interview under uh, with a special counsel would be like. It's almost certain that the president would say something that could get him into trouble. And so if you're a lawyer, and I wonder what your thought is about this, MLA, whether you would ever let your client go into such a situation. Those are two possible options for what is happening with this memo. I think there's another option, which is if the memo never gets released, what's more powerful, a a memo with claims that can be rebutted by the FBI director or a memo that never gets published and then people can say, well, I mean, if, if only it had been published, we would know the true virulence of the of the crimes at the FBI. And now that it isn't, you know, it can become in people's imagination, whatever they choose to want. it. Yeah, to I, I would have thought that would have been the way to go, except that they already voted to release it. Like they're already going down this road. I mean, I guess like Trump could stop it. That just seems he does not seem inclined to do that. It's not his character. Right. And I keep thinking that from his point of view, and there's so many examples of this, right, this idea that he asked Rosenstein, are you on my team? Like where he just must find this, like, we have, well, we, I have these bedrock assumptions about the norms that govern the president's relationship with the Justice Department and the FBI and the sort of carefully worked out balance since Watergate that, yes, these institutions are within the executive branch, but the president is very careful to stay away from anything that would seem like interfering in an investigation. I mean, to Donald Trump, this is clearly just incredibly frustrating and stupid, and he just doesn't buy it on some fundamental level. 
So the notion that like he's going to be the one to stand in front of the memo, I don't know. There's right. Yeah. Uh, I was listening to Slow Burn, the really wonderful Slate podcast about the Watergate affair. I can't wait to listen to the last episode of that show. Has gotten better and better as it's gone it's, on. It's fantastic. And what's really interesting about what happened with Nixon is that so so the crimes that Nixon was accused of and was guilty of um, are somewhat analogous to some of the things that people are talking about with Trump. And in particular, the fine, the smoking gun tape that took him down was Nixon proposing that they tell the CIA to shut down an FBI investigation. So it was something similar meddling in what places the president shouldn't be meddling, but where he did sort of also have authority kind of to do it. But what was really interesting about the the fall of Nixon is that here you had a president who was really popular and was also by most you know re- reasonable standards a pretty good president someone who who is you did know good interest, stuff. did good stuff was really interested in policy was innovative on policy had a lot widespread popular support for a lot of what he was doing um and and that he even that but there was so much danger to the institutions and norms of the country, that that, that that threat was so powerful that even members of his own party felt they couldn't support him. They justified the removal of a good and successful president. Trump is not a good and successful president. Trump is a, is a bad president who is not very good on policy, not very effective. He's not helping the Republican uh, brand at all. And it's not really clear why the Republican Party is so willing no. to defend that and to defend the destruction of inst- the institutions. Yes, it is clear. His no. face is with him. He has 80% I, and higher approval you, ratings among Mike, Republican Mike, voters. Mike Pence, President Mike Pence would have just as high approval and would be a lot more competent. Yeah, but, but, but Trump the, has is believed to have and does have a connection to his base and all of that is boosted by right-wing media and until that yeah. changes, like that this is the way it is. You, also, he is the president. We elected right. him president. Yeah, and you also forget that the events between getting from Trump as president to Pence as president would cause extraordinary disruption in that base and would not, which would not be good for those lawmakers on the Republican side who made that happen. They would suffer all the while while trying to get President Trump, I guess, in this well, that, scenario. I think that was, absol- that was absolutely true of Nixon as well. That was true in the Nixon time well, as well. Well, I don't people, know. And the people partisanship said, wasn't even well, close in the Nixon time. Well, the, the, well, and the there was Republicans, no right-wing there was, media. The Republicans had a bloodbath in 74 and 76. They were destroyed. And then six years later, they right, had Ronald but it Reagan. Wasn't, but but, but the, the, the partisanship of today is nowhere close to the way it was in... I mean, you had moderate Demo- Republicans... You had moderate Republicans in in the 1960s uh, or in the early 1970s in a way you don't really have them today. And then also the power of the base in both parties, but, but most particularly the power of the base in the Republican Party and the fealty required or else you'll get a primary opponent financed by outside groups and supported by a, a media and social media, that all didn't exist back then in the way it does today. Yeah. No, I, 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 that's all and, by the way, true. And the, the, June... the, the cowardice that is being demonstrated is proof of that. And... It just is amazing to me that the level of destruction, the level of threat to institutions that Republicans basically support and think are good for the country is incredible. And the unwillingness, the, the unwillingness to resist that so far is bizarre to me I and, think, and so worrisome. Well, you have, I think you have two other things. One, it wasn't really until the June 23rd tape came out. I mean, there was a smoking gun. There was, there was know, a smoking gun. There was gun. a smoking That's gun. Right. And then secondly, you have a Republican party that um, finds the president perhaps distasteful, but um, they like the tax cut bill that passed. They like what's happening in judicial appointments. And um, this, of course, is in addition to the points we just made about partisanship. They like the direction in which judicial appointments are going. And uh, and they like the Supreme Court pick, of course, as well. So, And they like the fact that a lot of regulations are going away and that at the EPA, the FCC, the FDA, and the rest of them, regulations and uh, the, the entire direction of those agencies is being reversed from the Obama years. So... There's a great deal for Republicans to like that's pretty generic Republican viewpoints on all those things um, with the extent on, by the way, on immigration. But then the only thing where there's an there's a distance there would be on trade. But mostly right. well, the policies are but, all but, pretty much in keeping with what Republicans like. Right. But that doesn't that is actually has nothing to do with 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 
what we're talking about. But you well, are assuming that we can just like trade in Trump for Pence no, without I'm not like, no, messing no, around no, with anything. No, it, would, it would mess but around, but they're going to lose, they they lose the 2020. They're going to lose the 2020 election. They're going to get it. They're get, not sure about they're that. They're going to get crushed in 2018, and that's going to happen. And it's going to happen worse the more they're attached to Trump. But I, don't I thought you were saying you didn't why like they're, that they didn't like the policies that he's supporting, and they do. Well, no, you were saying he's a bad president, was, which is a more it's the more global statement. They they like ish the policies he's supporting, but he's embarrassing the party and he's making he's he's making the I don't think there are many Republicans who think that Donald Trump as a president is a better president for the country or for the Republican Party than Mike Pence would be. If you could just imagine, you know, magically if substitute. If they could wave a magic wand, maybe they'd wave it, but they absolutely cannot. Like, that's not how it works. And they're deeply aware of that. Can I say one more thing, steal one more thing from Slowburn that really jumped out at me? When a special counsel was appointed to investigate Nixon, it was Archibald Cox, who was this like Harvard bow tie wearing liberal. I am now stealing directly from Leon on his show. But Nixon did not go after him on partisan grounds. It just like didn't occur to them to try to argue that Cox was partisan and biased. I mean, if Mueller was a Cox-like figure, just imagine what would be happening. And there is something illustrative in that detail about the distance we've traveled and and what it what what partisanship has come to mean. I, I continue to think that this investigation is obviously super important and yet is the wrong tree to be barking up. Trump as, you know, Trump is a terribly corrupt person. He uh, has obstructed justice, it looks to me. He has probably, his campaign probably colluded, attempted to collude with Russians to affect the election, all of that. Um, I think he's committed impeachable offense probably every day he's been in office practically. But it's, if Democrats wish to damage the presidency and and restore themselves to power and and make a political comeback, it's spending their time on Trump's policies, on the Republican policies, not on this stuff. This stuff is just confusing and muddlesome. And, you know, I know it has to be done because it's the law, but I just don't think. Well, you sound like a political work. operative right now. I will just say that as like a non lawyer who went to law school. I am much less sure than you are that all of those nefarious things about Trump are true, but I deeply care about finishing this investigation and finding out whatever Mueller has to tell us because that's rule of law, basic principle. The the president is subject to the laws just like everyone else. I feel like that matters enormously, and it may not be the, the best way to win the 2018 or 2020 elections. Focusing on this, I also think like... It's not an either or, but it it just seems institutionally to be an imperative that we get an answer to this. We can't just be like, you know what? Sorry, we don't care about looking into whether the Russians like through the election. We're we're not interested in whether the president obstructed justice. We're just going to like cauterize this chapter and pretend that it didn't happen. That's just I, that just just seems like a, a deep error. And we know how important this is from Watergate. Also, Democrats, you know, I mean. It, I guess. What do you mean? You mean like elected officials or just Democrats in general? What do you mean? Well, I what mean, do I mean because because Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer uh, actually don't talk about this that much. That's right. true. I think I I mean. You want Adam Schiff and Mark Warner to no, be quiet? No, it's, it's I mean, more like I want. It's, it's more like I want us and the media you to stop talking to, about it. Okay, just, well we can but, consider not discussing it. But, next but week. here's the thing, though. Think about that'll you, make all the difference. You've been enjoying <laughs> slow burn, and like. The president right. and and Cong- and and the chairman of a committee in Congress going after the FBI is that's a big right. like that's an objectively big deal. That's not about politics. That's about separation of powers and about as you were making the case last week yeah. about yeah, the, you're right. you know an you're independent right. institution. You're right. It's more me speaking as a somebody who who wishes the Republican Congress ill and out of office and wishes this president out of office. Well, also, there is something, the rabbit hole part of it is, like, serious. I mean, you have to concentrate really hard. There are, like, new names to learn every week or remind yourself of. You can't, you're like, wait, is that a new piece of information, or did I hear that six months ago? I was sure that I would never hear Devin Nunes' name again. I really was sure. He was somebody who I thought, (laughs) I've heard, I've learned this person's name back a year ago, and I was like, I don't need to know it. I I, I never need to know this person's name again, and now I have to know his damn name. Can I, can I, (laughs) mention one other thing about Mark Corallo, who um, 
Oh, yeah. You said Trump official. He was the spokesperson for Trump's legal team for like for a, 10 minutes, a, minute, yeah. a hot minute uh, there before he left, perhaps because he was concerned about obstruction. Right. Ahead, he resigned. Trump. I mean, I think the reporting is that he he resigned at a very strange moment. And the mm. reporting has been that he resigned because of the handling of this memo about or explaining this press release, explaining what happened in the Don Jr. meeting with um, the Russian lawyer who was promising him dirt on Hillary Clinton. He's a fascinating figure in this um, because he resigned in the moment, it appears, because he said something fishy happened. And now the New York Times is reporting that one of the things that was fishy is that that Hope Hicks said that these emails will never show the light of day. I don't know what, I mean, was that obstruction or was that her just hoping something was true for some other reason, but... Um, right, but something bugged Mark Pacarello about it. We yep. should say that Hope Hicks's lawyer on her behalf denied that she ever made such a statement. That's very, very useful. Thank you. That's right. Okay. Lucky Slate Plus members. We have a Slate Plus segment for you, a bonus segment on every episode. Today's bonus segment is, is it okay to buy Twitter followers? We'll talk about the... Interesting story this week in the New York Times about the underground industry where you can buy social media followers and social media attention. If you want to hear that discussion or other Slate Plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up for membership. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. President Trump delivered an exceptionally long State of the Union address on Tuesday night. I must begin with confession, which is that I did not watch it. I started to watch the Dickersonian coverage on CBS. I heard John, I heard you say, we're waiting for the House Sergeant of Arms. <laughs> and then I realized that literally anything I would do with the next 90 minutes would be more edifying and uh, less uh, distressing. So I watched the Black Mirror episode instead. Um, How's Black Mirror? Great. <laughs> okay, good. Re- really good. Yeah, people really, speak really, really highly of it. It's really good. I'm sure. No, but I mean, I heard mixed things about the second season, actually. It's the fourth season. But... Oh, <laughs> the current <laughs> yes, season. Yes, but I what about said. the second season? <laughs> In any case. Okay. I did read the speech. I read about the speech. I watched some highlights. Uh, I now understand that we're about to go to war with North Korea and also MS-13, that ISIS has been defeated, that we are not going to spend $1.5 trillion on infrastructure, but somehow going to spend $1.5 trillion on infrastructure. In any case, John, you watched it. You forgot that all Americans are dreamers. We're all dreamers. I'm not really a dreamer, so it didn't stick with me. John, how was the speech? Well, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack. There's obviously there's the the theater review part, which um, obviously this is a president who thinks of things as a stage, and so he used the format of the State of the Union with dotted by these stories, which presented his vision of America, in which people and not the government uh, were the authors of their fate. Often in the Trump presidency, because it comes from the president, the messages and is a very it's a very blunt um, instrument. And I thought in this case, the the speech itself showed some interesting political thoughts about how to use the speech to put Democrats in a in a box um, by creating a picture of America and essentially saying to Democrats, why don't you come along with this issue, this idea of America? 
There was actually a lot of restraint in the speech. The president didn't uh, w- w- didn't talk about his, himself. Clearly, he was. They front loaded a lot of these stories to talk about other people to create this tableau. Why does that matter? Because it suggests that it imp- that in, an impulsive president who has been at war in one way or another with his own staff that has been trying to rein in his impulses got him at some level to try to portray a picture of the presidency that during his actual presidency he hasn't bothered with much. But in terms of actually extending an olive branch to Democrats by either accepting their view of the world in any small way to suggest that he was creating some political space for them to work with him, he didn't do that. He obviously, when he said Americans are dreamers too, that was a direct shot at Democrats. Uh, And then we should obviously get to immigration, which was the core policy part of the speech. Um, But I've been talking too long, but there was obviously a lot lot in there. Just like the president. (laughs) But not for an hour and 20 minutes. (laughs) All right. So, Emily, every State of the Union is too long. It's forgettable and irrelevant. Is there anything reason to think this one will be relevant and remembered? Um, Well, I mean, I think that the divisiveness about immigration, the kind of getting further from a deal um, by taking the hard line on this, that seems like it actually might matter. I hate the State of the Union. I don't think I've watched a State of the Union for more than like five or ten minutes in little pieces, maybe my whole life. It's such a grab bag, and I'm sort of allergic to this kind of political theater. I don't like the standing up of people around the room who then come to symbolize. It just seems like using people to me. I don't like the whole... I don't like anything about it, to be honest. Just on the spectacle... Well, two points on the spectacle of it. One is I simply do not understand, I say this every year, why someone doesn't try a whole new format and just try Seriously. to try to make a point in a totally different way, shake it up. Um, it's it's soul-crushing. It's not that it's soul-crushing. It's not soul-crushing. That's not the right term. It is, it's just really boring and demoralizing. You know, if you're if you're the majority, if you support the president, it's it's like boring and you have moments to cheer about. If you pose a president, it's boring and you just irritating and frustrating. But for nobody, is it actually enlightening or does it does it change people or energize people? It doesn't energize people. It it provides it sucks energy away from people. And so I I don't understand why somebody like Trump, who is such a master spectacle, doesn't recognize that. I I slightly disagree. I think for Republicans and in that case, I'm talking about not just the Trump base. I'm talking about the Trump base plus the people who reluctantly supported him because they didn't like Hillary Clinton and those people who uh, don't like him at all. I think hearing a president praise the military, talk about the American flag, talk about faith, um, provide a public spectacle, because that's what the State of the Union has become, in support of those values and that picture of America, I think is something that a lot of people who are Republicans would find appealing. Um, so I don't well, think, it, and I think the appealing, way, but first you, of all, Democrats praise the military, John, that's a complete fallacy. So, I mean, right. But so my point is that, that praising the military is different than praising it in the way that Donald Trump did it. This was more, so now it's cheer- like a matter of how many words and oh, how long you oh, drone absolutely. on for. That's yeah. how we measure like where well, you are. I don't are. know. It's, and, it's, it's not how sense. we, it's not how we measure. My point was just that there the are people, measures, and yes. I think it's actually even beyond the Trump base who would find something appealing in uh, spending that much time on those things in, in a presidential address. Well, but, so, uh, of, co- of course, people will find that appealing, and I'm sure if you insta-poll it, and maybe CBS did this afterwards, and you take a focus group, that, that there are people who are encouraged and heartened by it. I just think, and you know this better than I do, John, if you look at historical polling data, the the, the duration, like, does that endure? Does that have meaningful, oh. lasting significance? Does it change how people think or behave in the world? No. Yeah. Does well, it, that, is no it memorable would, for people? Yeah. No. No, no, nobody would make that claim. I just so, mean, I just meant that that when you were saying that there nobody would have liked it, I don't I don't think that's true. Does it have any lasting significance? I don't think it does. I think it does tell us something interesting about what is going on inside the White House. A presidency dominated both in policy and spectacle government in which the president calls the tune about what is going to be going into Congress and what's how it should go. And Congress is expected to do what he says. Um, and then he is also the central spectacle in the American drama. 
He is the ringmaster here at center stage, even though his speech was obviously written and the whole tableau was written to create a, a notion of an America rather than I, Donald Trump. But in the symbolism, you can't mistake that it's I, Donald Trump, which is also an aberration of the original design of our, right. you know, representative right. government. Then I, that's yeah. very well said, John. I wanted, That was the point I wanted to make about the pomp. I think one of the things that happens every year around the State of the Union is that anchors like John Dickerson, perhaps. I don't even know if you did this. But there's this there's this rhetoric that's used about the the symbolism, the solemnity, the the coming together, the, the peaceful coming together of all these branches of government. You have the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you have Supreme Court uh, justices, you have the cabinet, you have the House and the Senate of both members from both parties in front of a public, both a physically present public in the galleries and then obviously a, a millions of people watching. And so this this magnificent solemnity that represents the glory of the institutions. And I think I feel that that there's a kind of element of poison that has crept into it for just the reason that you cite. Um, there's one other one other point, I ju- just juxtaposition that I thought was really interesting was the State of the Union was the same day that there was this announcement that Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway mm-hmm. and J.P. Morgan Chase are teaming up to try to remake healthcare. They're trying to come up with a better model for healthcare and healthcare delivery. So interesting. And the reason they're doing that is because essentially the public sector has been hopeless that it. the public sector has failed. There have been these efforts, but because there's simply no disagree, there's no agreement within the public sector about what measures should be pursued. And I just thought that the juxtaposition of a president standing up there and outlining, of course, these grand ideas and in front of a Congress, which is supposed to execute on these grand ideas, and the contrast uh, of the, the their shabby ability to do it Versus the real problems that we face, whether it's Puerto Rico, whether it's you know inequality, whether it's declines in life expectancy across the country, whether it's the the failure of the healthcare system, that is a pretty shabby and sad juxtaposition. It is, but if we feel like the partisan lock is unbreakable for all the reasons that we've talked about over the millions of years in our in politics, the idea that they at least want to try to do a workaround is at least momentarily hopeful um, that now I don't, I'm sure there are all kinds of reasons. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm glad they're doing so it. So I guess to the extent I, I think that they're more likely to solve it, but it's, but it's a sign it's of a how, sign broken, of how the broken the public sector is. Oh, absolutely. No, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely the case. There's a nice column by Dana Milbank in the Washington post, which whacks Democrats for their behavior during the state of the union uh, he says they I, should have been clapping more. Well, that they some of them didn't stand when the president entered the House chamber. Do you think it is okay for opposition politicians to behave this way? I mean, there was certainly mega disapproval from liberals when Joe Wilson yelled, "You lie!" at Barack Obama back in two thousand nine or two thousand ten. Indeed, there was. Do you think the same the same applies to Democrats who are? who didn't yell, you lie, but they certainly uh, conveyed their distaste for the president. Well, on the one hand, you were just talking about the danger of kind of lionizing the president in the office too much and the way the whole event creates that um, risk and that, I would say, reality. I mean, it's all geared toward that. So I suppose if that's your main concern, then having people, uh, you know, in some small way or large way exercise their right to distance themselves and make clear their lack of affinity for the president in both parties is fine. It's like Congress rabble rousing a little bit and using its like nanosecond in front of the camera to to try to present a different point of view. I don't I'm not a big fan of these pomp and circumstance moments, like I said from the beginning. But once you're in one, mm-hmm. the just basic like right politeness and civility does seem to me like it has some worth and currency. And I worry that because Trump is such a divisive figure, this is an example of him just like bringing everyone down and that there's just like some basic civility that should reign in that chamber in this public moment. Um, I don't know. John, what do you yeah, think? Uh, no, I, I, I agree. And um, uh, and I thought it was it was I thought it was bad on um on those grounds, and then just also on tactical grounds, people are watching and see you not standing up when he talks about the national anthem. A lot of people aren't mm-hmm. going to realize that you think that this is a shot at, you know, Colin Kaepernick and the players who are kneeling 
uh, because of social justice concerns about America and all of that. All they see is a guy talking about in God we trust and national anthem. And you're not standing and clapping. You're looking furious. And so it's just tactically, it's a bad idea. So why not just follow the basic decorum ideas for this one moment of symbolism and then move on? John, end us with a brief discussion on immigration and the president's policy goals as outlined in the speech and whether they will carry forth into legislation. Well, the president, so he outlined uh, four pillars of his immigration plan. Um, This is kind of late in this back and forth for the president to be finally engaging in the in the negotiations. But anyway, essentially what he offered was um, this trade, which is uh, a lot of money for the border wall in exchange for 1.8 million uh, undocumented immigrants who were brought here by their parents at a younger age that would have a pathway to citizenship. Then he would end the visa lottery. That's the third pillar. And then um, ending uh, what they call chain migration, what others call family reunification, setting limits on that. Even the use of, let's say, the term chain migration. If you are in earnest trying to put together a deal with Democrats, you just leave that expression out because you know what it does to irritate the other side. And um, and so when the president's and also then when the president says Americans are dreamers, too, you're pitting Democrats who who care about the dreamers and saying, basically, you don't care about Americans. That's the subtext of that. So and then when you talk about MS-13, you you know, you're sending a signal to Democrats that uh, or I should say, you know, Democrats will read that as you portraying all immigrants as murderers. And the other subtext here is that the president ran an ad or the president's campaign committee ran an ad in which they said that the Democrats were complicit in kim- in, in killings by illegal immigrants um, because they had shut down the government. So with all that mood music, if you really wanted to get a deal done on immigration, you wouldn't have done all of those things. In, and so there's the policy, but then there were also actual word choices. And because this is a public argument over policy that were either not avoided or that were purposely chosen to irritate Democrats. Um, There was nothing done in putting out those four pillars that's going to help solve the problem. And the problem is that the president has conservative. We talked about this last week and don't need to belabor it. But he has conservatives who think that 1.8 million um, dreamers are being given amnesty and will be furious at that. And then there are Democrats who aren't going to get any closer because he's he's upped the price now for his wall. It didn't do anything to actually make the situation better. It made it worse. And he also had this little sleight of hand where he said, we've been working with Democrats and this is the bipartisan bill. He sort of presented his ideas as if they were the product of bipartisan negotiation, which is why Dick Durbin was shaking his head and saying no violently while he was speaking. So if this speech was an attempt to get closer to a deal, I don't think it did that at all. Okay. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hillary Clinton found herself on the wrong side of Me Too this week after reports came out that she had overruled a recommendation back in 2007 that her presidential campaign fire its faith advisor for harassing a woman who worked for him. The faith advisor, whose name Burns Strider, a name you could not make up if you tried, was accused of delivering unwanted kisses and back massages, sending untoward late-night texts, and generally behaving in a stalkerly manner. When alerted to this, uh, two senior campaign officials, Jess O'Connell and then the campaign manager, Patty Solis Doyle, recommended that Clinton fire Strider. She, this is in late 2007, overruled them, reassigned the woman to a good job elsewhere in the campaign, docked Strider's pay, and required him to go to counseling. Counseling never went to, in fact. The coda to the story, the appendix to the story, is that five years later, working at another Clinton-affiliated organization, a PAC, Strider was fired for sexually harassing other young women who worked for him. Clinton at first weaseled when this story came out. Um, Then a few minutes before the State of the Union, she released a longer Facebook statement saying she wouldn't do it the same way again, that she had talked to the woman who had been the victim, and that woman was satisfied with the disposition of it. And 
that, you know, her thinking at the time was that she hoped the punishment would change Strider's behavior, but it didn't. And therefore it was a, turned out to be the wrong choice. Emily, this prompted an outpouring of fury from women who have long supported her. Do you share that fury? Yeah, mostly. I mean, so I guess I would start with saying that in the abstract, I am in favor of some interim measures and punishments for people accused of sexual harassment. I don't think everyone has to be fired and forever, like, drummed out of their profession. I actually think that hearing about this kind of measure, it's like it's important that we figure out some in-between punishments, just as we need in-between punishments in the criminal justice system. That said, there were two things that really, really troubled me about this story. One was Clinton overriding the recommendations of the people who were investigating and supervising. And the reason that bothered me so much is this is the kind of story that just like a few sentences, the, the sentences we have in news coverage don't really get at it. I think you have to like talk to the people involved and really understand the context deeply and why this woman felt uncomfortable and how constant and icky this guy's attentions were to really understand. And it sounds like both of the um, women in the Clinton uh, you know, world who were investigating and supervising really got all of that context and then they made a decision. And so the idea that Hillary Clinton, you know, wife of accused sexual uh, harasser and predator Bill Clinton, would have overrode those recommendations because she liked Strider or whatever just seems like bad to me. The other thing that really bothered me was her Facebook statement. I think Ruth Marcus wrote a column kind of rewriting that statement to make it much more forthright and powerful. The the part that just drove me up the wall was when Clinton said, well, I thought at the time this was the best solution. Come on. Like, you thought that this guy didn't warrant getting fired for your own reasons. And, you know, Clinton's not – it's not fair – to hold her accountable in th- that moment of decision for the stuff he did five years later. But it is also, I just I just found that most of that statement to be self-serving and defensive in this way that, like, it's, this is the, the weakness, the kind of Achilles heel of Hillary Clinton as a politician. And now that she's not running for office, she doesn't, there's there's no excuse for that well, kind of weaselly language, and and that just like disappoints wait, me. Wait, well, Emily, I I think I totally disagree with you about everything you just said. But oh, let's, good. Let's let's continue. I'm, why let's it, why does it not? It seems to me it seems to me that if Strider had not reoffended, there would be no story at all. Well, what about? I mean. If, she, if Strider had not reoffended, what about the fact that she overrode the recommendations of Patty Sullivan well, and the other? That's person. what bosses do. They make decisions based on sort of more knowledge and and a, a grander sense and more life experience, and that's why she was the the boss and they weren't. And this is very analogous to you know parole in in parole decisions. All the time, parole boards make decisions, and there are parolees who reoffend, right? And when they they reoffend, everyone's like, "Well, why did they let this person out?" It's because they made a you know they they make bets, and sometimes your bets are wrong. And I think if if Strider had not reoffended, that you would sit look back and say, "Okay, here's a case. It was a it was a fifty fifty. She went one way, and it, look, this guy got his life together. He you know he he got on antidepressants. Uh, he." restored he his marriage. He didn't go to the counseling he was supposed to go to. Right. That is, he didn't go to the <laughs> Nobody counseling. Nobody checked to make sure Nobody, he had. Right. That, hmm. was, that was poor. I think the, that decision alone in a vacuum is a perfectly reasonable decision. It's a perfectly reasonable decision to have made in 2007. And it's very weird to me to impose the standards of 2018 on the standards of 2007 and to say that just because there were these recommendations that she, you know, she committed some some foul act by doing this. I think that was a, she was engaging in subtlety and she was wrong because she picked the wrong guy. You know, he didn't learn his lesson and he went on to, to be a predator elsewhere. And, and so she was wrong. She, she made a bad choice, but I don't think that the, the choice was intrinsically wrong at the time. It's only wrong in retrospect. Maybe, but so two things. I mean, I just, I do think that when bosses override the decision of the people, like, 
involved in the investigation, they better have some really good reasons. And I haven't heard any really good reasons. And I don't think she wants to get into that. But like, that's not good. I guess the other thing I would say is that given that the two women who are investigating or overseeing the investigation, um, Patty Solis Doyle and Jess O'Connell, came out the other way, it does not seem as if by the standards of 2007, firing this guy was like some extreme action to take. I mean, they, first of all, 2007 is not an antediluvian period. I mean, I realize it's like before our current moment, but they made the opposite call because that seemed like a reasonable um, decision to them. And so I think that suggests I don't know there and I it's also impossible for me to separate this judgment call that Hillary Clinton made from her relationship with mm. her husband which is none of my business in many ways but does make one wonder whether she is not so good at preventing men from prowling well, as I think Gail Collins I think put that it. uh I come down sort of between the two of you on this game time decision she made cuz she could she could have just believed in forgiveness and redemption and that he was doing a good job and shouldn't be shouldn't get the maximalist punishment if she believed it was going to stick. But I think, you know, what you say, Emily, obviously has got to be a, a part of the calculus as well. Surely her own life experience with this must have played a role. As a manager, it's probably not great either to overrule two of your people. You know, sometimes when they make a call... You have to trust, and this is way true of presidents, because they you can't do all the, the the spade work yourself. You have to basically trust that you hired good enough people who have your values and who do all the investigative work here, make a call, and unless you really, 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 really have a, a reason to do it, you basically uh, go with them. I I just think, Emily, for you, who somebody who believes when it comes to the criminal justice system, believes in mercy and in subtlety and in the value of taking a risk that people are learning their lesson and being given second chances, to be so immediately condemnatory of her giving a second chance to somebody who is, as far as we know at the time, and maybe this will change, this was a first offense of his. And look, the the last person who, who needs who deserves uh, a chance in the world is a, is a handsy, gross, middle-aged white guy. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not going to pretend. And yet, well, and, no, but, but, as an but, know, but as an abstract principle, keep going. <laughs> but I do think that you, the fact that she came down on the side of mercy. Now, maybe she came down on the side of mercy because it was, it was purely opportunistic. She didn't want to offend the faith community. She thought this guy was doing good work for her and didn't want the, the trauma. That's, that's entirely possible. It's also possible she did it because she thought this guy, has, he's screwed up. He's having some messed up time in his family. He's depressed. And let's, let's get him some help and, and see if he can rehabilitate himself. Right. So that was why I started out by saying that I think we need to find a place for interim punishments. And when I first read about this, this I was more sympathetic to that point of view. And yet the consequences for this person, it it seems in retrospect. And again, like this is hard because you're right. If he hadn't reoffended, then we wouldn't be clear about this. And she didn't know that at the time. And that's like important to kind of hang on to. But you know, one thing I was thinking about is in our current moment, we're relying on shaming a great deal, right? So, you know, one parallel that Clinton kind of obliquely brought up in her Facebook statement was the New York Times, like, interim punishment of Glenn Thrush, right? New York Times, my employer. I don't know, Glenn. But this idea that, you know, you'd suspend someone, take him off the White House beat, but not fire him. And then there are all these, like, charges of hypocrisy because the Times had broken the story. And I guess what I feel like is a really important element is that, you know, Thrush has been publicly shamed and embarrassed, and we're relying on that part of this to dissuade him from continuing to treat women like this. And that was not part at all of the Byrne-Strider story. And in fact, there wasn't really any follow-up if he didn't go to counseling. And so it seems like the lesson he took from this was that he could get away with this. Now, I don't think that you have to fire someone to show them that they can't get away with this, but something went wrong. And yes, it's true that it's only in retrospect we see that, but I really wonder 
what message was sent to him that was insufficient and whether, you know, Clinton's decision as a boss is the main ingredient here for a kind of laxness. And I guess I also like, yes, it's important to allow for mercy and leniency and second chances, but that doesn't mean that, you know, bosses shouldn't take strong action. We're not in a, we're not talking about someone going to jail. We're talking about whether someone should have like a very high ranking position and sensitive position. And that's like a different calculus. Yeah. I, I certainly think the, if you want to call Hillary Clinton to account, you call her to account one for not following up to ensure that the counseling was done Two for continuing to keep Strider very much in her orbit until very recently, until the present, essentially. Um, if she knew that he reoffended in 2013 and then still inviting him to her book parties and still hanging out with him, then she deserves more stick for that than I mean, also, she, what if she received. didn't know because no one thought she would care? Yeah. Like, I don't know. That seems weird, too. He was working for Sets her pack. Either way, it seems problematic. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is at most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're, um, when you're having a drink with your faith advisor, John, <laughs> what are you going to be chattering about? I like having drinks with my faith advisor. Um, uh, Trey Gowdy, congressman from South Carolina, Republican, announced that he's not going to rerun or he's not going to run again for Congress. And um, what the fuck is well, going on with him? He's been sick of Washington for a while. So this is not. He said something about returning to the judicial system. He was yeah, a prosecutor. So a judge. Great. Um, anyway, he was elected in in uh, in 2010 in South Carolina and has basically gotten sick of um, Congress in Washington. He is not the only Republican in that position. There are l- little less than 40 Republicans who are retiring um, now. Some in that number are uh, running for other Republican offices, but that's a huge number. But the other really big number is the nine committee chairmen in the House who are retiring. This week also brought the news that Chairman Rodney Freelingheisen is retiring. He is um, one of the Appropriations Committee chairmen. And there are people that that spent entire careers just trying to be um, on the Appropriations Committee. And so you now have these people who, for all kinds of reasons, should stay in Congress, but are now choosing not to stay. It's kind of extraordinary what's happening before we even get to the actual election time. Can I pause on Trey Gowdy for one second, who I know slightly? Because <laughs> he's your best friend. No, I know sl- I knew him slightly many, many years ago, and he, I found him delightful. I, I haven't talked to him in 15 years. But so Trey Gowdy won that seat yeah. for Bob Inglis. Bob Inglis, John, <laughs> you and I remember this because you and I were covering. But Bob Inglis was n- sort of notoriously incredibly conservative. He was one of the Gingrich revolutionaries. He was He was the icon of conservatism 
really, really right wing um, by the standards of the 90s. And Gowdy beat him in 2010 by saying essentially that Inglis was soft and was no longer conservative, that Inglis was a moderate. Now you have Gowdy himself who's become... Gowdy, no one would call him a moderate, but Gowdy is somebody who people treat as as a reasonable Republican. People on the li- the left will say, "Well, he's a, you know he's a very thoughtful person," and uh, it's just a signal of, I guess, how far right the party. Keeps and we, going. wait, I have to say something else about Bob Inglis, which is that last summer he wrote an op-ed for the Washington Times about how it's the headline is I helped draft Clinton's impeachment articles the charges against Trump are more serious yeah he's been on a <laughs> that's I why love, I remember I he's, been on a, um, he's been on a a, a push crusade of uh, to reorient the Republican Party as well on issues like climate change and um, and get it back to its original conservative principles so uh He's still out there. David and I, uh, was that the, I, I guess I'd met you before, but we, yeah, we were, met, we, we met, I think we met at the Hollings, uh, uh, Hollings yeah, debate. Was, All right. Now we really oh, love no, that was, He brought that you together. That was such a great race to cover. Oh my gosh. That was so, yeah. because, mostly because Hollings was just like an old bull of the Senate who would just do whatever. Have I told this story on the Gabfest before? They were at a joint debate at, um, this is when members of the parties used to actually like debate each other a lot in campaigns instead of just rushing off and telling their bases what they want to hear, and that was it. But the two of them were at a senior center together, and English was very uh, balanced budgets, um, you know, restrain the growth of entitlements kind of candidate. And so he went on and on about the demographic boom that was going to cripple the budget. And this, again, was was at a time where Republicans all were running as deficit hawks, counter to the behavior in the most recent tax cut. Hollings, as a purveyor of pork, I remember the headline of our story at the time was Porks on the Griddle, um, was, uh, you know, was ruining our fiscal future. And he gets done with this long uh, wind-up much like the one I'm on right now. And and Hollings just goes, monkey talk. <laughs> that was his rebuttal. <laughs> that was his rebuttal to Inglis. And uh, that was a great race. It's so, I've just pulled up my piece about it. <laughs> All right, guys, your trip down memory lane my headline sweet, is sweet, but it's going on my, forever. It was October 22nd, 1998. My headline was Foghorn Leghorn Meets an Owl. <laughs> Oh, that's that's good. I like that one. Uh, I was at Time Magazine where I don't think we would have we could have gotten away with that. But. Anyway, Emily, when you're talking to your spiritual advisor, your faith advisor, what would you be chattering about? So, do you guys have watched the show High Maintenance at all? No. Yes. Okay, so the new season has uh, two episodes out, or at least, I think. And the second one is called Fagin. And the last, like, five or six minutes of this episode just is my favorite thing of the week. I've been, like, forcing it on everyone. Um, I don't want to give away the plot, but I just found it to be an excellent send-up of feminists and women meet-up gatherings everywhere. Um, And I'm generally a fan of that show, but that five or six minutes, I keep, like, forcing it on people and making them watch it. Um, So I now, I can't force the GabFest audience to listen to it. But I really recommend it. It was really Oh, I can't wait. I loved the first episode of the season. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, I mean, I should say that you have to watch the whole uh, 28 minutes or whatever it is of Fagin to really get the jokes at the end. Um, But I really recommend it. It was worth it. My chatter is about Frank Four's magnificent Paul Manafort story in The Atlantic. Uh, Frank, friend of the Gabfest, spent many, many months excavating Manafort's history. He's written about Manafort before, wrote about him before the 2016 election and why he was so threatening. But it's it's an incredible piece about how Manafort created the swamp uh, that is Washington, how so much of what we think of as being wrong in Washington comes from the sleaziness, big and small, that Manafort uh, pioneered in the 80s and how his this all helped ensnare ensnare the country within with Donald Trump. It is a gruesome and very vivid story, and I recommend it very highly. Frank Four on Paul Manafort in the Atlantic. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest for Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, and David Plotz. Thanks for listening, and please come to our St. Louis show on May 2nd. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. We'll see you in St. Louis. Meet me in St. Louis. Louis, meet me at the fair. 
don't tell me the lights are shining any place but there. Oh. We'll dance the hoochie coochie. You'll be my tootsie woozy. You'll meet me in St. Louis. Louis, meet me at the fair. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.